Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We begin, though, with a focus on renting. The rental situation in and around Metro Vancouver specifically has been quite fluid lately as uh, we started off another year of 2020 in high demand with international students and tenants clamoring and scrapping for rental availabilities. And then the pandemic came along and all of those Airbnb uh, units that had been taken out of the rental supply suddenly were returned as Airbnb all but shut down. International students were forbidden for coming here, so they stayed home, and suddenly we have rental availabilities, the likes of which we haven't seen for quite some time. So all of that just with days left in 2020. So what about 2021? What sort of challenges will renters feel or face rather in the new year? Rob Patterson is with the Tenant Resource and Advisory Committee here in Vancouver and is here to talk to us a little bit about and answer hopefully some of those questions. Rob, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you. Talk to us first about my assessment of rental availability, simply the availability of accommodation. At the end of this peculiar year, Rob, my sense is that we have more rental units available in and around Metro Vancouver than we have had in quite some time. I think that's probably fair that there are a lot of units that, as you say, have come on the market because, you know, they were intended for short term rentals or for international students and they haven't panned out. Those markets haven't panned out. So they're being returned to the, uh, I guess, just the mainstream market. Uh, I would say, however, a lot of those units tend to be rented at closer to luxury prices at a higher price point. So while units are coming onto the market, they are coming on at a higher price point. So because of that, they're not directly leading to you know, as much immediate affordability as you'd, you know, you'd hope to see. Uh, units are still pretty, quite expensive. Uh, and I, I, as I've been following along, every time I hear someone tell me a story about how you know, rent, units are coming back on, rents are falling, I tend to check the listings. I haven't seen that much downward pressure on sort of you know, the, the fundamentals of like one or two bedroom, simple basic basement suites uh, or, or simple units. Yeah, and, and I was thinking, you know, a lot of those Airbnb units are in pretty uh, swishy condo towers. Uh, and, you know, even if they do come online as a uh, as a rental monthly unit now, because the Airbnb dream has evaporated, they're still going to be pretty pricey, aren't they? Absolutely, yeah. I think that's that's what you see when you see those kind of places listed. You can often tell the the pic the way the pictures are taken are often a little bit different, or the fact that they are they tend to be more uh, furnished more more than average, um, and yeah, that leads to them the, the prices being higher, uh, um, which unfortunately means that that supply coming back into the market isn't really directly leading to the to the affordability we'd like to see, to so the rents moving downwards. Um, unfortunately, and yet yeah, we hear we see stories in the papers on the weekend editions, particularly Rob, that suggest at least that the average price of a rental apartment in Vancouver has come down a little bit. And is even that a safe statement to make? 
I mean, I think that might be true. I, I think that movement, though, it's it's an average that's moving down because some of those higher price units are cutting down. Okay. So places like uh, uh, large houses that might uh, rent for four, uh, four to five thousand dollars a month might be coming down a bit. More rental luxury units might be moving downwards. At that sort of lower end, where you're hope we're hoping to sort of reestablish actually affordable housing. So things that are around you know, thirty percent of people's actual incomes. That's the, you know, a good benchmark for affordability. It's still challenging to find those units. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about evictions, too, because that's been another conundrum facing tenants in 2020 in Vancouver. And they were sort of backstopped for a while, Rob, by a, a moratorium, a government-imposed moratorium on evictions. Landlords were not allowed to do that. Has that moratorium expired? Uh, so, yes, there was a, effectively a two-stage moratorium. So from March until mid-June, uh, there was a period of time where no evictions could be could be, could be happen except for urgent evictions. Urgent evictions were always allowed to happen during this period. Um, and then from June to, to mid-July, uh, or, or mid-August, rather, uh, landlords could evict for anything except non-payment of rent. And then in August, we saw the implementation of the repayment plan process right. that aims to give tenants more time to pay back the rents. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, it, the all the eviction ban originally was a very a good and positive step. A lot of made sure a lot of people were could stay in their homes during the, the sort of fledgling days of the pandemic. Sure. Um, I think there were uh, the fact that it ended so quickly uh, has led to a lot of tenants sort of be facing eviction in now a more uh, more risky, more disastrous second wave. Um, and I think there's also significant drawbacks to the repayment plan. Uh, approach that perhaps the government did not think through at the time they implemented it. So what would you say, we're going to take a break here in a second, we're going to open up the phone lines as well, but what would you say, just based on your perspective there at the Tenants Resource and Advisory Committee, Rob, what do you say is the single largest challenge facing renters as we round the corner into 2021? For sure. I, I think there's probably, uh, not to, to uh, cheat at the question, but there's probably two things. So okay. first, the fact that renters still face eviction uh, in the middle of a pandemic, especially you know for evictions for two and four month notices for landlord use or for renovation, those are tenancies where you know a tenant does nothing wrong and may face the loss of their home and having to move during a pandemic. Uh, it doesn't make sense, in in my our view, to to expose tenants to that. Uh, and secondly, the tenants who who could not make some payments during the original emergency period now face rent debt that is being paid off through a payment plan. Right. However, that what that effectively has amounted to is a one year temporary rent increase that for some tenants is hundreds of extra dollars a month that they don't they cannot afford, um, which has also led again to more tenants you know leaving their units, perhaps not being able to find new units if they were used to be in affordable places and now can't find any. Uh, so I think there needs to be a, re- a reapproach to those two questions, you know, keeping people in their homes and making sure people aren't burdened unfairly with rent debt. Mike is enjoying some Christmas vacation time. Sterling Fox back with you here on the network on this lovely morning. It's a little nippy, but it's beautiful, clear and sunny. Rob Patterson is joining us from the Tenants Resource and Advisory Committee. We're talking about the challenges facing both landlords and tenants as we round the corner into 2021 after an extremely strange 2020. Uh, we open up the phone lines. Let's include some some callers here, Rob, as we go forward. And we'll start with Ron in Vancouver. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Two comments. Um, I provide a, um, a, um, a single-family home to a tenant and have done for a number of years. Uh, my issue is, uh, very simply, I do not get any rent relief for horrendous increases in uh, property taxes mm-hmm. and, also, and also insurance. And yet my rent is limited to zero 
and 1.4%. Correct. Uh, where's the equity in that? The second thing is the math that you put forth is really quite illogical. If you owe $100 and all of a sudden you get uh, a rent deferral for for a period of time, that deferral does not amount to a ta- to a rent increase. So please do not use those words because they don't just don't make sense. All right. Now, Rob, uh, he's talking specifically about what we asked in terms of the the back debt, rent debt owing mm-hmm. uh, based on this uh, payment negotiation program that was brought out earlier this year. Absolutely. Yeah. My comment was that if a rent tenant, for example, was paying $1,000 a month or $1,500 a month and couldn't make one month's rent during that time, that 1000 or over $1,000 payment was then spread over the next number of months up until uh, July 2021 is the, the last, when the last payment would be due. Right. An amount, you know, if a tenant just misses one month at an average rent in Vancouver, which is actually closer to $2,000, that's going to be an increase of, uh, you know, at least a couple hundred dollars a month, around $100 a month, close to 200 a month. For those prorated months. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, to a tenant, you know, whether or not that's a temporary increase or not, you know, it's still an increase to the rent they're paying. And for many, you know, who who were just barely able to make their rent payments beforehand, that could uh, constitute a now a, pay, a rent that they can no longer pay and they have to abandon their tenancy okay. um, without actually any relief from the debt that they owe their landlord. Um, so that's that was where my comment was coming from. And I think it's also fair to point out that certainly not in all cases, Rob, but in many cases, those who are responsible for those paybacks and working out those n- debt to repayment programs still don't have a job and that uh, that that does complicate things uh, a lot of people who are renters work in the service sector and the hospitality sector and i know the government's going to have some announcements to make this afternoon with regards to maybe backstopping some of that a little bit uh however belatedly uh but uh, no there, there's still a lot of unemployed people but i think i think ron's first point is is a is a valid one he's he's the landlord he can't increase rents and yet well, as we've seen here in the city of Vancouver, they have no problem jacking up the property tax by 5%, and the insurance companies aren't, aren't going to uh, take a look at no increases in premiums because it's been a bad year. So from a landlord perspective, their costs aren't fixed, and the, the, their cash flow is, and that's restrictive. I think that's the point he was trying to make, and I think it's a fair one, Rob. Yes, I think on, on that one, I, I certainly understand where he's coming from. Um, you know, the challenges of, of COVID-19 have had effects, you know, on, you know, if this is also a trickle down on how COVID-19 has affected municipalities that have resulted in, in changing a property tax in, in a year where rent, can, and rent increases have been canceled because of how, uh, how much we're, uh, how much it has economic damage has it's been affected on renters. I think on, on the one hand, I, I would say that uh, rent increases, so the rent increases aren't necessarily a solution to these kinds of problems, simply because tenants don't, uh, you know, they aren't a, an, an ex- inexhaustible uh, well of wealth. We can't sort of continually to ask them to pay more and more, um, even uh, even though the burden may be going up on landlords in this regard. Um, tenants, as you say, many of them still don't are unemployed. They've uh, been disproportionately affected by COVID-19, especially economically. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day as well, I think an important thing to remember is, you know, tenants don't share in the most profitable part of owning uh, landlording, landlord property, which is the increase in property value over time. So a landlord who, for example, has owned a home for five years, um, you know, they, while they may, the rents may be covering their expenses, they are also have amassed a significant amount of equity uh, and increase in the value of the home. Uh, that a renter does, that does not share in. Um, so in, in terms of like thinking of an equitable solution, on the one hand, yes, some of these costs are rising 
for landlords. And in in specific cases, such as with the strata insurance crisis, yeah. you know, we're looking at a public option solution for that because it's it's so predominantly uh, it's it's effect seems incredibly unfair. Yeah. Um, but it is important to remember that renters do not share in the major wealth generation process of of owning landlorded property, uh, which is the the share of the generation of wealth from simply owning that property and and the increase in its value. Back to the phones, Blake in the West End. Thank you for waiting and good morning. Good morning. Um, the last gentleman that was on, I thought he really made a good point, and you folks have discussed it. But where I find it very unfair is with uh, Mon Paul landlords like myself, and that and our rents in the West End and are around a thousand dollars. Well, we were told at the Reynoldsman's office to we could increase the rents, and then of course they were. The now it's not valid. Right. So as I said, you know the expenses are in this bit about owning property. I don't think the gentleman knows that that pretty well everyone in my family had a job, so we could make the mortgage payments, make the mortgage payments, and now we're stuck. Although we have good tenants, we're stuck with this thousand dollars a month rent. Well, you feel, as you've already mentioned, the taxes, everything. So that was very unfair. Right. If, they, if they would have said um, below a certain amount of rent, and uh, maybe, the, and we could prove it, well, then I could say yes, have the increase. All so right, but, Blake. Thanks very much. Uh, you talked about July next July. Is that the end? That was the end of the debt repayment uh, term, uh, Rob. But when does the, uh, the moratorium on on evictions and and the freeze on rent? When does that end, or is it more or less fluidly permanent? So the moratorium on evictions is completely over at yeah, this yeah. point. Um, I, I, meant, I meant for, rent yeah. freezes. Okay, <laughs> sure. Um, and for the, yeah, the rent freeze, to my knowledge, um, the limit in 2021 is what it is. Uh, and I think it can be brought into effect after after July 2021. I'll, I'll have to recheck my notes on that. Um, but going forward after 2021, I, I don't think the government has announced what their intentions are for 2022, for okay. example. Um, I have to leave yeah. it there, Rob. I'm fresh out of time. Got to leave the, the network. And thank you for yours. Rob Patterson at the Tenants Committee. And a good morning to you. Mike Smith on vacation. Sterling Fox with you in the morning sunshine, at least here in Metro Vancouver. A chilly morning, but a really pretty one. This is one of your picture postcard days. This is why you moved here. If you're here from another part of the world and you look around today and go, yep, it sure is nice. We have a a situation in British Columbia with a program being implemented or uh, actually authorized by the B.C. government called the B.C. Recovery Benefit Program, which is uh, attempting to provide British Columbians with some degree of financial support during these troubled times. The government, uh, uh, during the election campaign recently, indicated that this report, uh, this recovery benefit program would roll out smoothly and quickly, and uh, apparently it's not as smooth and certainly not as quick as many had anticipated. Could they have done it differently? And we've heard about a bit of a crash on the website on the first day. Might that have been anticipated and and perhaps they have been a little better prepared for it? Here to talk about the rollout of the BC recovery benefit is the guy from the other side of the house. Todd Stone is the BC Liberal MLA for Kamloops South Thompson. He's also the critic for jobs, economic recovery and innovation and joins us on the line. Todd, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be with you this morning, Sterling. Compliments of the season to you, sir. 
Uh, same to you. I, I, you got some snow down there. Yeah, we sure we sure did. And, and all <laughs> all it takes is is a few flakes, and the whole area goes into uh, well, almost cardiac arrest. It, it, well. were, were it not for the fact that people behind the wheel could kill you, it's kind of funny, Todd, because not many of them know how to drive. There's never last long enough for us to get used to it. Let's talk well, a little. Enjoy the white Christmas. Uh, well, you know, we had a we had a thing on the weekend just a few days ago. We asked our listeners, "Are you are you hoping for snow for Christmas?" Uh, and and no one, Todd, no one in Metro Vancouver answered, oh, you bet we are. Absolutely everyone said, not a chance. On the mountains where we can ski on it, you bet. In my driveway, forget about it. Uh, let's talk about the recovery benefit because, of course, we've had uh, we've had some, some technical difficulties that I would imagine any government program should easily anticipate, uh, website crashes and all of that. In fact, uh, just before we get your feedback on this, uh, let's get to the Premier's word, going back to the setup of all of this, and then we had that website crash that Mr. Horgan was asked to, well, comment on. Yeah, they're working on it, uh, and it, that speaks to uh, the, the uptake on this program, and I'm excited about that, but uh, so many people uh, hit, hit send uh, that we've had uh, technical difficulties, but we've got a team working on it, and it'll be up and running soon, and if we continue to have difficulties, we'll just keep uh, trying through the weekend and into next week. It's not unlike, Mike, you remember when we got rid of the bots for people getting campsites and uh, the, camp, yeah. the, the, the site kept crashing because people wanted to find campsites. That's what we're seeing today. And I ask people to be patient keep going back, keep refreshing, and hopefully we'll get uh, everybody through as quickly as possible. Now, that's a premier, uh, Todd, talking with Mike Smith a couple of days ago about the website crash. And Mike asked the obvious question, which uh, I think pretty much any, any taxpayer has a right to ask, why didn't the government anticipate this kind of demand and therefore the technical crash on the website? Well, I asked those questions, as you can well imagine, and the answers I got was we're fully prepared. But I also know uh, I'm not uh, a tech wizard, but I do know that uh, uh, when there's an overwhelming rush uh, to a site, that causes challenges. Uh, we had what we thought were fail-safes in place. Clearly, they weren't sufficient. So uh, I'll ask uh, people again to be patient and, and hope that uh, our tech uh, wizards are, are working on it right now. So, Todd, there you go. There's a couple of, of dances done by the Premier because they just simply didn't anticipate demand. Uh, I, I, I don't know that uh, uh, even if they had uh, perhaps better uh, appreciated the fact that there was going to be this monstrous demand on the first moment of the first possible day, they could have perhaps, I, I suppose, created a, a portal that could accommodate a larger group. But no, there was no way that they were going to, uh, uh, overwhelming was not going to be a part of day one. Well, as the Premier says he's not a tech wizard. I think he's he's also not a wizard at keeping his commitments. Uh, he looked British Columbians in the eyes during the election campaign, and he was very clear day in, day out. Uh, families in British Columbia will get a $1,000 recovery benefit if, if, if his government was re-elected. Uh, just last week, uh, the minister responsible, Selena Robinson, uh, stood in the legislature uh, amid uh, you know, ongoing questioning from, from uh, my opposition colleagues and myself uh, on this very topic. And she said, don't worry, it's all been tested. We're, we're certain that it's going to work. Uh, look, they obviously didn't learn the lessons from uh, the, the camping reservation system, which, uh, which crashed uh, in the summer uh, about a year ago, <clears throat> uh, you know, and, and uh, it, they certainly didn't draw upon best uh, practices from other jurisdictions. Um, you know, the federal government, for example, with a number of their uh, uh, high volume uh, support uh, programs, 
they managed to to stage the um, uh, the the accessing of um, uh, the the application process for those support programs. You know, you could you, you could say uh, if your last name starts, uh, you know, with uh, with the letters A through E, uh, you you access your application on Monday. Uh, if you're F through J, you access it on Tuesday. But it doesn't appear they did any of that. Well, uh, and, they, and, and it's it's again, it's a pretty rudimentary concept, isn't it? How about we try the alphabetical system? Your names, a uh, person's A through C on day one and so on. So we asked the premier, why didn't you go with something as simple as an alphabetical system? Yeah, I, di- I didn't give any consideration to that. I left it to the people who manage these things. We did learn from uh, the, cha- the challenges around the campsite issue. That, uh, that was the first question I asked, Mike, and I was given assurances that we were in good shape. Clearly, uh, uh, that wasn't sufficient. And I, I just, again, asked people to be patient uh, we are going to get through this. Uh, it's not unlike everything else in 2020. Uh, right. Challenges, uh, new attempts, new uh, new programs, uh, and again, good suggestion. Uh, I'll put that in the box. Okay, so there, there. That was again a pretty a pretty rudimentary approach to organizing what you would easily anticipate to be a monstrous demand on a public program. But Todd, the other thing that I'm starting to hear from, and we're going to open up our phone lines in a couple of minutes across the province too to to solicit feedback from from people who may have applied. We had a call from a woman yesterday who said, "I don't know what the fuss is all about." I went online, I went click 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 click. Bob's your uncle, and I was done. So no problem there, and that your other people calling up going, you know, they're sending me emails. They want uh, old tax returns. They want hydro bills with certain dates on them with my home address on it. I thought this was going to be easy. It's only 500 bucks. It's turning into more trouble than it was worth. Well, we're all hearing that. Uh, you know, I have dozens of emails from constituents uh, just over the last 24 hours who uh, have experienced a wide range of frustrations uh, accessing the system and uh, and then uh, once they're in, they go through the process of applying uh, only to hit submit. Uh, and then uh, at some point thereafter, uh, in some cases, it was, uh, you know, the, the next morning. In some cases, it was it was pretty quick. Uh, they receive an email uh, back from the government of British Columbia saying, oh, uh, you know, we need to, yeah. uh, to, to have you send us uh, your driver's license and, and your notice of assessment and, you know, social insurance number and all, you know, proof of address. Yeah, hydro bill or something. Bill, yeah. Hydro bill. <laughs> And, and, oh, by the way, it might take 30 days uh, because of the high volume for us to process your application. Uh, again, this, these benefits were supposed to be, uh, as the premier said, direct deposited before Christmas. Right. Um, that's clearly not going to happen for tens of thousands of British Columbians. And, Sterling, the people that seem to be hit the hardest with this um, appear to be seniors, mm-hmm. uh, particularly those on low incomes, uh, persons with disabilities, uh, and, um, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, folks that, that are on other forms of social assistance. Um, uh, newsflash, the government of British Columbia has all of the personal data they need, the confirmations of address, right. these, you know, social insurance numbers and whatnot for all of these people. But what's the holdup? Why, why not just uh, direct deposit the funds uh, for, for all of these folks? Uh, so that they can actually, um, you know, get their hands on this cash, which they were promised months ago. And in many cases, I think, uh, you know, folks, because they they, they were counting on it, um, have, have spent some or all of the, uh, these dollars before they've even received it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as was pointed out to us on the show yesterday, uh, some of the demands in terms of supplementary information requested by the government of seniors and persons with disabilities who are not necessarily the most technically proficient citizens in the province for whom submitting this additional information may be more than a little bit of a chore. 
Well, and, and that's exactly correct. Uh, again, uh, the government has got the vast majority of this data already. Uh, if the goal here, as the Premier stated over and over, is to push supports out to the people who need it the most as quickly as possible, that certainly isn't isn't accomplished when you we layer on an additional 30-day time period and a whole bunch of reporting requirements for you know an 84-year-old senior, uh, like, uh, like a, a constituent of mine who, who sent me an email this morning. Um, she uh, she had her son come over. They spent uh, a considerable amount of time navigating the site, inputting the information, mm-hmm. and you know working their way through it. Again, only to then receive an email back saying, "Oh, sorry, uh, we need all of this additional information." It's heartbreaking, um, you know. And in many cases, uh, folks uh, again because they trusted Selena Robinson, they took her at her word. They trusted the premier. They took him at his word. Um, you know, they they might have gone out and, and said, "You know what, we're." Um, we're, we're gonna we're gonna buy a, a couple gifts for our kids uh, that we might not have otherwise uh, purchased because I've got five hundred or a thousand bucks coming yeah. uh, be- before Christmas, as as was promised. Uh, you know what, what what does the premier, what does the finance minister have to say to to, to, to those those folks uh, who are now scrambling and and frankly pretty darn stressed uh, on top of everything else that's going on uh, in their lives uh, that they're not going to receive this money uh, in a timely fashion as promised. Oh. Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith, joined on the line from Kamloops by Liberal MLA Todd Stone, who is the critic for jobs and economic recovery and innovation. We're talking about the BC recovery benefit with people who are, I assume, at least in line trying to get it. Schmidt in Surrey is on the line, Todd, so let's start there. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just have a quick question. Uh, I have two adult children that live at home, but they're both working in that. I just want to know, are they eligible for this recovery benefit? Todd, what do you know about eligibility requirements? Well, uh, again, the eligibility requirements are, are a bit fuzzy, but uh, it, it, families with incomes in 2019 of less than 125000 uh, can get $1,000. And then, of course, there's a sliding scale uh, that, that to a cutoff income of 175000 So that's a, as, a, as a family. Um, and then, of course, singles uh, can, can, can apply. And, and with, with the incomes uh, in 2019 of less than uh, $62,500 can get uh, up to $500. Right. Um, and there's a sliding scale that goes up, I believe, to 87.5. So uh, your caller would have to, you know, check with uh, with with, uh, with his, you know, his professional you know, financial advisors and whatnot. But uh, assuming his his uh, you know his his kids are are of age, uh, they um, presumably they should be able to apply. Okay, Phil in Burnaby. Good morning. Oh, I'm sorry. I've I've gone to the wrong line. I'm in Kamloops. One of your one of your voters there. Graham is on the line. Todd, go ahead. Graham. Good morning. Hi. I tried to do it myself, and it took me three days to get through. And then finally I get through, and then I get the response, and they need them for more information. I work for the government myself. Oh. And it took me three days to attach the documents. It was terrible. And if, if I'm supposedly computer literate, and these people don't have access to things and the half-built computers... God help them. Yeah, I was just going to say, for some people, if if it took you, and you know what you're doing, if it took you three days to put your package together, imagine trying to put it together and, Graham, not having a clue how to do it. Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. I am supposedly know what I'm doing, and it frustrated the hell out of me. So God help those people who are trying to do it. And I'm still, you know, I don't know if what I sent them is appropriate or not. And you haven't, so you don't even know if you're approved yet, do you? No, no. Okay, interesting stuff. Todd, why do they have to make it so blinking complicated? It sounded during the election like it was going to be next to automatic. 
Well, and th- this is the issue. It's just so darn random. I mean, it makes no sense. Uh, uh, you know, Graham uh, uh, is a, uh, a, a employed uh, a servant of the government of British Columbia, and and uh, obviously, obviously, you know, the government has his information. Uh, what what the heck would they need uh, additional information from from Graham? Um, but but we're, again, we're hearing this from uh, from all kinds of people. Uh, some some folks, uh, to be fair, uh, are are indicating. Uh, like you said, Sterling, they, they're they're going on and and you know lickety split, um, everything seems to work just fine. Well, sure, but uh, but lots are having issues. The other issue that that's happening is um, again, this is based on uh, your eligibility is based on your 2019 income. Yes. I, I've got a, a you know one example, a constituent who's a welder. Uh, he made uh, just under 90 grand in 2019. Uh, he lost his job in March of this year um, and has been unemployed ever since. Mm-hmm. He went on. He went to the trouble. It, it, it all worked for him. Uh, but then it told him that his his, uh, his the amount that he would be getting wasn't five hundred bucks, wasn't a thousand bucks. It was going to be twenty two dollars. Oh my gosh! I mean, what, what, this whole uh, recovery benefit um, is, uh, is is deeply flawed uh, and not well thought. And I think it reflects uh, really what it is. It was an election commitment that was rushed out the door by the premier. Uh, to uh, to to win some votes and and uh, you know I, I suppose from that perspective it worked for him. I want to give Phil and Burnaby a chance to get his question on the air. Sorry, I put you on a hold for a second there, Phil. Thanks for waiting. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Uh, yeah, my son did his and mine last night on his phone. Uh, you know, like he yeah. And uh, it took him less than five minutes to do two. I'm getting back sixty dollars, and he's getting back five hundred. Okay, and did you... And it just went real quick. And, and so you know you're approved, and you know the amount. Yes, you know, they already, you know, they... Uh, uh, okay. You know, they post it on the phone, what? and, uh, you, know, you know, and, uh, you know, and we had no, he had no problem. Well, good for you, and, and your son. Uh, and, but, you know, it's so random, Todd. I think that's what's driving people nuts. One, I'm getting emails here, sterling at cknw.com. I'm getting one email from a guy who just wants to know, why does everybody have to be, quote, audited as you said earlier most of this information is already on file well certainly again if you're if you're a, uh, an individual on, on low-income supplements if you have other uh, if you're receiving other types of social assistance certainly if you're uh, on, on pwb uh, D benefits or uh, um, employment insurance the government has got uh, uh, all kinds of information on you certainly the basic information that would be required in order to be able to to push this uh, this 500 bucks out the door um, and and frankly you know that begs the question we were asking it last week uh, we'll ask it again why why are these monies not just being auto uh, deposited in, in the bank accounts of, of all of those individuals uh, that for, for whom the government has already got this information? Good question. You know, Selena Robinson said three point seven million. Have to leave it there, Todd. Eligible. No, I, good questions, fair questions. We we'll have to leave it there. Thank you for your time this morning. It's Sterling Fox sitting in for the vacationing Mike Smith on this very nice looking Tuesday morning. Still a little cool, two degrees in the morning sunshine. It's time to check in with the folks at the Vancouver Food Bank next on on our program and it's always a pleasure to say good morning to david long the ceo at the greater vancouver food bank david good morning welcome back well good morning sterling thanks very much indeed for having me back on the show well it's good to have you back david and i kind of uh, teased our listeners a few moments ago by saying we're going to check in with the folks at the food bank who have a very urgent need at this time of the year and surprise surprise it's not money. We'll tell you more after the news. So here we are after the news. Now, now I, I was being kind of flippant because not to be in need of money for a food bank, of course, is almost an oxymoron. You always need money, but you need volunteers this year. Even more, David. Tell us why. 
Um, no, absolutely, Sterling. Um, I mean, we always uh, are very grateful, and uh, the, the public have been uh, been incredible over the, the last sort of eight or nine months, as they as they always are uh, to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Um, but uh, yeah, we're we're looking for volunteers. Um, we've we've certainly lost a number of volunteers because of COVID, because of the fears yes uh, associated um, with the virus, and uh, we just wanted to have an opportunity to say. Uh, we have uh, very, very safe, very stringent uh, protocols in place to keep everybody safe with lots of PPE and sanitizer. Uh, and if anybody has some time on their hands, uh, we would love to see them volunteer for, for the food bank. Well, no, it's not that we don't believe you or anything, David, but we poked around and, and, and found an actual volunteer named Maria. And here's what she had to say about volunteering at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. I've been here since March, since the pandemic hit. I decided to volunteer because I understood that some of the volunteers weren't able to help out at the time, so I, I started then. And what's your favorite part about volunteering? Uh, my favorite part is the people. I love the clients and the staff and the volunteers. It's, it's just a really nice atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And would you recommend this to uh, your friends or your family? Too? Oh, 100%. In fact, I have. My husband came and signed up and volunteered, and another friend of mine came too. So, yeah. yeah. Do you feel safe working at the food bank? Yes, absolutely. They put in really good um, COVID protocols at the beginning of the pandemic, and we've sort of upped them going along. And yeah, I feel extremely safe here. Yeah. And David, that's Maria, who's been a volunteer for many, many months now and clearly very much enjoys the assignment she's taken on and feels quite safe uh, in, a, in a pandemic and being a community volunteer and knowing she's doing good work. No, absolutely. As Maria is awesome, and as as she said, we put we put protocols in place. We've been. Uh, I had Vancouver Coastal Health, Fraser Health. Uh, I've had WorkSafe BC come through, uh, just to give me their opinion about what how we have set things up. And uh, you know, we literally got two thumbs up from all the organizations. So we're thrilled with what we've done. Um, you know, we we want to be very cognizant of of making sure that nobody on the team, whether they're staff, volunteers, clients, or anybody, uh, gets in contact with this, with this dreadful virus until we get through this and get people vaccinated. So um, I would encourage people, if you have some spare time, please come see us. We're uh, a very friendly group of people. Uh, the work we do is very meaningful. Uh, you'll get a lot of smiles and a lot of thank yous. And uh, it's Christmas. Absolutely. So talk to us a little bit about being a volunteer like Maria. Uh, do, you, do you get to work your own hours? Are, are there specific shifts that you're required to fill? Um, uh, how flexible can, can your activity or your involvement be, David? Uh, well, we have a number of uh, opportunities for volunteers. We have distribution sites. Uh, right now we're at Charles Street in Vancouver. Uh, our main warehouse distribution location is in Winston Street in Burnaby. Okay. Uh, we're at Olivet Church in New Westminster. Um, so there's lots of opportunities to volunteer sort of in the front line, uh, helping people get access to food. And we also have uh, food sort volunteers uh, here at our warehouse in Winston Street. Uh, and sort of, you know, we're sorting the fresh, uh, fresh food, the dry food. Um, shifts Monday to Saturday, uh, a variety of different shifts, and people can sign up online, which is the beauty of it. Okay. Uh, uh, foodbank.bc.ca slash volunteer, and uh, there's a great website there. People can sign up. They can choose shifts, uh, and once they've signed up and then they choose the shift, they get confirmation. We do a bit of an orientation online, uh, and then they can come and be part of, of what we're doing. 
And can you volunteer specifically? Suppose you think of yourself as a kind of a people person, and, mm. and so you you would uh, you, you you would probably find more satisfaction in dealing at the front end of the operation with people coming in uh, and helping them uh, select their food and get them their their supplies, as opposed to maybe someone else who's not uh, particularly uh, keen on the social interaction but wants to help out and maybe working the loading dock would be more up there, Ali. So you've got all sorts of possibilities, right? Absolutely. There's all sorts of possibilities. Come and take a look, uh, meet the team that's here, and you can choose which one you'd like to, to be part of. Uh, and honestly, the people that come in and do the uh, the food sort are, are just blown away by the quality of the food that we're actually uh, that we're receiving these days from our big industrial partners. Yeah. Now let's talk about that because you know I was being a little facetious about not needing money. You always need money, and in fact, David, this is a good opportunity here just in the in the few short days left before the Christmas uh, celebrations and so on to remind us exactly how much further a buck travels when we give it to the food bank versus going to the supermarket market ourselves uh absolutely the uh you know we we say that our, our buying power is is two to one that's sort of a a broad average across many different items um but if you take for example uh i always use the example of uh, we have some farmers in the okanagan who we, we purchase apples from and they grow these apples specifically for the food bank uh just last week we got about eight thousand pounds of ambrosia apples from wow. one of our uh, farmers in the okanagan and uh, we paid 45 cents a pound, where you and I would pay $2 in the, in the superstore, in the markets for those. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a four-to-one buying power. Other items aren't quite as uh, beneficial. Eggs are, are, are pretty hard to get a good deal on. But uh, we, try and, we try and average it around to say that, you know, the dollar goes twice as far as it would normally go. Right. And though, I mean, and not to not to turn your nose up at food donations, because there are still people who see their way of connecting with the food bank as in dropping off um, non-perishable food items. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. You can go on our website again. You can see the top 10 things that we're actually looking for. Um, you know, uh, certain items that are, uh, are are difficult for us to get hold of at a, at a competitive rate, sort of canned salmon, canned tuna, things like that. Um, if they go on the website, they can see that. And what I always ask people to do is before you donate, uh, if you can please check the date. Oh, the expiry date, the best before date, you mean? Um, absolutely. Okay, and I'm looking, I'm just, I'm on the website, and, and it says donate, you can click on a donate food, and then there's a most needed items, and surprisingly enough, it's a pasta and low-sodium canned salmon. Yep, those are, uh, those are certainly things that are very popular and, and in demand. You also talk about industry food donations. In addition to those of us who see fit whenever possible to either volunteer or pony up a few dollars or contribute in whatever way we can, you also have connections with the, with the food providers and food service industry that goes well beyond uh, us consumers, don't you, Doug? Uh, yes, we do. We, uh, we have some great relationships with some big, industry, uh, big industrial partners. Um, you know, we, we get what we call pre-consumer food, so some of the surplus of food that hasn't even gone to the stores yet, um, where, you know, the sales haven't been quite what the, these, uh, these large stores thought they might be, so we get the surplus of, uh, of those items. And some of the items we get, you know, the, the best before date on some of the cheese that we receive is maybe April, May, June of next year. Mm-hmm. So lots of shelf life, excellent quality, uh, and yeah, we're, we're really excited about what we're able to do and how we're able to help people. 
So uh, all of this, all of the uh, access points in terms of how you can connect with the Vancouver Food Bank, either as a donor or a volunteer or many other ways to participate, is at their website, which is foodbank.bc.ca. Let's flip the coin for a second, David, please, and talk about those individuals or families who may need the assistance of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Where do they go? Um, well, we have uh, we have four large distribution sites. Uh, we're down on Charles Street, as I said, in Vancouver, Winston Street, Burnaby, uh, Olivet Church, and New Westminster. And we also uh, have a great partnership on the North Shore with the uh, North Shore Neighborhood House uh, with Lisa, who's the executive director over there. Uh, the schedules uh, of the times that we're available, uh, it's all on our website. Mm-hmm. Uh, or people can just phone uh, phone up our office. We've got a couple of great volunteers answering the phones. And there's another opportunity for, for volunteers we're always looking for people to help us answering the phones, especially at this time of year. Uh, and our direct line is 604-876-3601. Uh, and if I may, I just want to urge people, um, you know, there's, there, there's a stigma about going to the food bank or about asking for help. And really, I, I just urge people, if you need some help, if you need some food for your family this Christmas, if things are tough, as they are for so many people, mm-hmm. please come and see us. There is absolutely no judgment, no stigma. We'll actually send you away with a smile on your face, and you'll probably wonder why you didn't come and see us before. Interesting. If you missed the phone number, it's 604-876-3601. And if you missed it that time around, I don't blame you. Uh, but it's all on the website, foodbank.bc.ca. And uh, all the information, indeed, including the contacts and the four addresses where you can go uh, physically to uh, to pick up some food if you if you are in, in need. And, uh, David, I'd simply echo your your. Uh, message here that you know Absolutely. you're right some people just can't quite bring themselves to going to a food bank it's it's it it's it, it they see it as a, a, as a charity that they should be able to look after themselves they shouldn't need this and yet damn it they do and sometimes you just have to go don't you Absolutely. I mean, it's it's quite incredible. In my line of work, the number of people I talk to um, and tour through our warehouse, I've, I've had celebrities come in here who uh, literally had one celebrity come through as a tour of the food bank who literally broke down in tears, uh, remembering his childhood when his parents uh, used to go to the food bank and mm-hmm. what it meant to them. And everybody needs a, a helping hand, especially at times like these. So, you know, we are very, very friendly. Come and see us. We'll put a smile on your face. We'll give you some amazing food to take away and feed your family. And if you have some time to spare and uh, looking for ways to give back to your community in a safe uh, environment, uh, the Food Bank very, very much interested in your energy and your contribution. So uh, you can go to foodbank.bc.ca for that reason as well, because David Long and his team at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank are looking for volunteers. It's kind of urgent, and they would really appreciate your involvement too. David Long, compliments of the season. Merry Christmas to you and all those good people who do such important work at the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Well, thank you, Sterling, and Merry Christmas to everybody at CKNW. You guys are uh, you're, you're great for us to be able to get the word out there, so we really appreciate any opportunity. Thank you. It's our pleasure. There's David Long, the CEO of the Greater Vancouver Food Bank, and the address, again, if you're near a computer, it's foodbank.bc.ca. 
Sterling Fox for Mike Smith. A slight improvement on the old thermometer outside the radio building. We're now at three degrees in the morning sunshine with lots of new snow on those uh, local mountains. It's very pretty looking, albeit somewhat cool. Second day of winter. It's 11.35 straight up, and it's a pleasure to welcome Mark Breslin to the program. Mr. Breslin is the CEO of Yuck Yucks International Stand-Up Comedy Clubs, joining us on the line from Toronto. Mark, welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you. It's nice to be on the show. Well, it's great to have you. Tell us, take us back to the 70s, Mark. Let's just just take this right back to square one, because we're coming up to the point where this country, boy, months and months and months of seriously needing a good laugh, and we really aren't, we're kind of hard-pressed to get it going. So we'll talk yuck yucks, we'll talk a little history here, and it does start in the mid-70s, doesn't it? Yeah, um, we're probably the second or third oldest comedy company in the world. Um, I started this company when I was 23 years old, if you can imagine that, not having any clue that it was going to be my life's work. I was just trying to get out of going to law school. And, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> really. People always say you should follow your dream, but actually I've been running away from my nightmare. Mm. And my nightmare is a desk job. So um, I had this idea. I met a lot of comics at that time. It was a whole new kind of comedy, uncensored and personal. And I just resonated with it completely, started doing some stuff of my own and, and opened up this, this club. Every single person predicted complete and total and utter failure. And that's when I knew it was going to be a success. Well, that's interesting. And, and I guess a lot of us, especially uh, who were around in the 70s and, and remember all the startups of a lot of these, uh, this whole comedy club movement that really has become quite a thing. But where did you find the money? You're 23 years old, you're flat broke, and you're skipping law school. I'm sure mom and dad are thrilled, so they're not going to be able to, to, be, to be tapped into for some loot. So where did you find the, the bankroll to get the whole thing going? I had a friend who was a real financial whiz, even at 23. He was already getting his master's at Stanford in business administration. He came back to Toronto and said, what are you doing? And I took him and I showed him the show that was running one night a week in the basement of a community center. And he was the one who said to me, you've got a business here. And I said, I do. He said, yeah. I said, personally, I don't care about the the comedy, but I, I love business and I'll help you raise money. So we went to everybody we ever met and asked them for $1,000 for a little tiny sliver of the company. Right. And you know what? We took them all out for uh, a successive brunches, and I gained 10 pounds, and I raised about $40,000. <laughs> all, all for a great cause. So, you and you start ha- a business today for $40,000, could you? No, you sure couldn't. Are you still packing the 10 pounds around, uh, Mark? No, <laughs> no, I lost, I lost those. That, that was for, no, I lost that due to worry uh, when I actually started doing the actual club. It was so not a business that for the first two years, I didn't even have a bank account. I just put everything in a shoebox. Wow. So where was the first club? In Toronto, but whereabouts? Uh, in Yorkville. Oh, and okay. that was a definite um, statement uh, to the city that we were going to take the ritziest, toniest neighborhood in town and then open up our dirty mouths there. And uh, it, w- it was a smash success, frankly. We didn't have a liquor license when we started. We didn't have a liquor license for the first two years. And you still managed to uh, pack them in. And, and how many nights a week did you did you open up initially once you got into that uh, in the, your own building? Seven. Well, you just went out for it. Just we went. just went for it, man. I oh. mean, we just did it. And um, not every night was packed, of course, but certainly the weekends were jammed, and we did two shows. And we even did three shows for a while um, on on Saturday nights. We did a one o'clock in the morning show, 
And the trouble with that one was the audience would actually fall asleep <laughs> while we were on stage, and we'd have to wake them up. We had somebody who was a designated waker, and they would walk from person to table to table and sort of shake the person awake. Well, that's hilarious because, of course, usually at 1 o'clock when you start the late, late show in a comedy club, it's the drunks you have to worry about. Well, I'm not sure that they didn't come already uh, pre-prepared for the show. I suppose because you didn't that. you didn't have a liquor license either, so you weren't uh, you weren't gassing them up uh, even more than when they arrived either, and that probably helped a bit. So, when did the second club open? The second club was a disastrous failure. It was in Montreal in 1980, and we just didn't study the marketplace well enough. We used our own money to do it. We didn't try to raise money, and it nearly sunk the whole company. We, we lasted for a year. We came back to Toronto with our tails between our legs. And then in 1984, we opened the first one out of Toronto that was a success, and that was Ottawa. Once we opened up in Ottawa and it was a big success, then very quickly in quick succession came Niagara Falls and Hamilton. And then we opened up in Edmonton, which was a place, of course, none of us had ever been to. Right. There was no history with it. And it was a smash. And once we opened there, we knew that we could pretty much open almost anywhere in the country that had enough of a population base. And uh, I think in two years or an 18-month period, we opened something like seven or eight clubs. When did you open Vancouver? 1988, I believe. Okay. Yes. I had just come back from California. I was producing the Joan Rivers show. Ah. And um, I didn't even stop in Toronto. I went directly to Vancouver and uh, uh, built the club on Davie Street. We've had four locations in Vancouver um, since 1988, and they've all been good. One in, uh, on Davie Street, but it had a problem with a liquor license, so it only lasted about 18 months. Then we went down to the Expo site. Oh, yeah, um, I remember and, that, sure. And that's right, and that was a great location, too, but uh, they expropriated it. Then we went to uh, a hotel, the hotel on... Uh, Burrard Street, but I can't remember the name of it. It's Burrard and Robson. Okay. Um, and that was Burrard good for a while, but we had a fight with our partners. And then we opened up with Gary Yule as the franchisee. Uh, we opened up uh, on um, on Canby. And, that was, and that, that was just great. It was a great club. Everybody loved that club. I'm curious to why, as to why, sitting in Toronto and with a bunch of uh, sort of central candidate guys sur- are surrounding you, why, when you decided to, well, let's take a flyer and try something out west, why you started in Edmonton, of all places? We just happened to have a deal sort of fall into our lap. Because Calgary makes kind of makes more sense if you're going to go out west uh-huh. um, in a lot of ways. But the deal fell into our lap. It was a fantastic location. Um, a fantastic room. Uh, uh, we had a partner there that we were happy with. Just a lot of things happened. It happened to us rather than us happening to them. So, so we opened there. And so we opened up in Calgary and, and Vancouver in pretty quick succession. So now, now bringing us up to date here in uh, in 2020, I'm on the website yuckyucks.com, and it says uh, Burlington temporarily closed. Uh, is that part of the Ford lockdown mark, or is that a separate closure due to pandemic related conditions? All our clubs in Ontario are closed because of the uh, the lockdown. Right, and the lockdown's been rolling here, like. Um, Burlington was actually one of the last places to close. Ottawa just closed this week because, you know, it's funny. Ottawa has very few cases. I know. And yet the premier thought, well, we're just going to close the whole whole province down. But Ottawa was actually limping, limping along. We were doing five shows a week um, with limited capacity. And it was the last it was sort of the last club standing. And now um, it will be gone until uh, the middle of January or the end of January. So um, so everything is closed now. This is a disaster. 
I'm not going to try to sugarcoat this. This is a disaster for comedy clubs. This is a disaster for comics. And I'm telling you, without Serb, um, those comics would be starving. And uh, they're, they're at least have been uh, the circle that you travel in and the people in the business that you know, have they by and large been successfully served by the Serb? Were they able to access those dollars? Yes, there's been. Uh, yes, I've never heard a complaint about it. Oh, good. It's all been it's all been good. There's another kind of uh, silver lining, which I'll mention, and that is this, that um, we've been selling a lot of comics to um, virtual corporate functions. Um, lots of them. I, that part of our business, which is usually a small part, has completely exploded. This is so, the this is the hire a comic button that you can click on the, on the homepage of the website. That's right. Okay. That's right. So um, you know, a company's having a party. Usually has a party. They usually have a band. They have all kinds of stuff. But people can't get together. They're in their homes. It's a Zoom party. Right. So what can you put on a Zoom party that makes any sense? A comic, of course. Now. Comics don't love doing Zoom things because they can't hear the audience. That's right. And this is one of the crucial things about stand-up comedy is you need the audience to complete it. So um, it's not ideal, but at least it's paying the rent for a lot of people. Well, I'm curious as to how successful it's being. I'm not surprised that, I mean, all look at all the theater companies and arts group that are, um, groups rather that have gone digital and virtual and whatever to just keep the brand out there in front of people and, and to give their performing groups an opportunity to, to at least do some kind of work. So uh, how, how is the demand for hire a comic for virtual meetings and parties and things, Mark? It's never, it's never been bigger. Um, I'm wondering whether when the um, pandemic finally ends, whether people will go back to those expensive, you know, fly everybody to Cancun kind of uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, parties that they have for the for the company's Christmas parties Mm -hmm. or whether they'll stay on Zoom and realize that it's actually kind of a good way of doing things. Not really sure, but one thing you should be aware of is not every comic is good for corporate functions. You have to be a little older, um, a little more conservative in your uh, language and, and choice of material. It doesn't work for absolutely everybody. Well, I was just going to say, and I, I'm, I'm sure from your end, the delivery end, uh, you have a conversation with those people before they uh, attend the virtual parties uh, to particularly pay attention to the demographics of the group they're about to join, Right. Well, they usually do some research anyway, and these are comics who have done live corporate uh, corporate events. So sure. They kind of know the score um, uh, about that, and we don't put everybody forward as a possibility because, you know, this is those corporate, me- those corporate meetings are probably not the place you send a comic who is really interested in um, making fun of the capitalist system. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. Pro- probably no. thoughtful yeah, on probably your part. Yeah. So, uh, so, Mark, as we go forward, and I've said this just in advance of your appearance this morning, I've said it at least 10 times on the radio, boy, are we ever in serious need of a good laugh. What a terrible year. Well, we've never been in more of a need of a, of a good laugh. And, you know, I've always maintained, um, and I say this to young comics, that they're really in the massage therapy business. Because really what they're doing is they're taking the tension of life and they're releasing it. And I can see this every single time I go to one of my clubs. I watch the audience file in, and I never get bored of watching this. And that you can see the tightness just in their body language. Mm-hmm. They laugh for two hours, and then they walk out, and it's like they're an open hand rather than a closed fist. And, boy, does that make me feel like maybe I didn't... Um, Maybe I, I was right in not going to law school. I was just going to say, skipping law school turned out to, although these many years later, and it hasn't all been hearts and flowers, it still turns out to have been a pretty good decision. 
um, I've really enjoyed my life. And how many people can say that? I've really enjoyed my life. In fact, I want to go further and say I might be one of the few people who will be lying on my deathbed and may actually say, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, uh, we should all be so lucky. Mark Breslin, uh, I'd I'd say I wish you continued success, but there's not a lot to succeed with. But you're working the angles. you got that uh, home Zoom thing going on with as many people as you can get working. uh, And you've got the attitude that will see you through to give us all a good laugh when you finally get a chance. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much. It's great to have you back, and Merry Christmas to you. To you, too. All the best.